It's called The Science Podcast. A couple of atheists that run this podcast. So I thought you'd be interested to hear what they say. This is only one little bit, it's like it's over half an hour, and I couldn't play you the whole thing because I'd have to have so many beeps in it bleeping out the expletives. Tonight's episode of The Science Enthusiast Podcast is brought to you by meal delivery services that embrace biotechnology. There there aren't any. There's been a kerfuffle. A little, a little kerfuffle. I mean, I guess it's my fault. I mean, I'm just a well, consumer that wants to have a dialogue. Fill in the people who, who don't know what the hell we're talking about right now. So, okay. So Blue Apron is is a meal delivery service. It gr- really good products, good recipes. Um, look, I'm doing an ad for them right now, um, which I subscribe to for... BlueApron.com oh slash don't go there. <laughs> slash, slash Natalie's going to tell you why not to go there. Hashtag but, but not no. an affiliate of us. <laughs> So anyways, I I received their their meals for like two and a half years, cooked them. Um, my kids liked them, like all this good stuff, right? So then I just happened to actually look at the box um, a couple weeks ago and noticed that they put right on the box now that there are no, or that it's all non-GMO ingredients. And I was like, fuck, you know, you know, when you're just like, you really like something, you have this impression of it and then it's just like fucking deal breaker. So, so I, so I, I maybe. Are we talking about Blue Apron or are we talking about my, my, my marriage? <laughs> We're talking about so many things. This could apply to everything. Okay. So speaking of that. So anyways, um, I had a relationship with Blue Apron as a consumer and I decided to take to my science mom's blog and write them a breakup letter blog post. So I did. Mm-hmm. And I, and I said, you know, like I'm breaking up with you. Like, it's not me. It's you because science and because you guys are standing on the side of you know like misinformation because they on their website have they say that they make a non-gmo commitment and it's like god damn it i was so bummed so um yeah so i might have tweeted a lot i might have had that blog shared in different places including on blue aprons facebook page um and so they eventually contacted me like we saw your stuff and um it was a, I mean, you saw the response. It was kind of like, you know, standard. So then I responded back. They responded back. And, um, you know, I, what did I do? Um, I just eventually had a phone call with them. And it was, there There will be a, a blog post coming out um, later this week. Where's that coming out? I, I think you will be able to find something on Genetic Literacy Project Ooh, about this. How about that? Um, so that's cool. Thanks, Dan and John, for helping me with that. And um, I'm still kind of bummed at Blue Apron. They, I will say, they seem to be smart people. They seem to understand that biotechnology is an important tool in, you know, issues of food and, like, global hunger and all of that. But they do not seem like they want to... To change their stance, so let let's say that this is probably going to be a continuing dialogue. But um, but yeah, how cool would it be though for just for companies like that, for more companies that provide food, that provide services like this, to vocally embrace science, biotech, and the ideas that you know, like GM crops could really help on a global scale. That'd be rad require you to find something in their non-GMO that is you, you can find in another product that may be considered scary sounding, like, I don't know, yoga mats, and then directing a large horde of uh, misguided uh, people on Facebook to 
to ruin Subway's bread is what I'm saying, basically. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like that, like the the fear mongering around like GMOs and chemicals and all of that. I mean, isn't that so? I think Jason Merkley put it in um on one of my Facebook posts. He's like, it's so to that like 2013, like all of this you know, stupid shit about food. Like, let's move past it. I would love to see more companies decide that they want to attract, like, science-minded, informed consumers instead of pandering. Or not to even, fear not people. even, like, right, um, not even necessarily, like, like try to attract them. Just not embrace the the fear mongering yeah. and and just not go that totally. that route because they don't have to say, well, we we include GMO. Like, I don't, exactly. That no, you're really, right. You're right. Yes. And I, and yeah. I was going to say, even with, with the conversation that you had, it's not even so much GMO or genetic engineered crops that they're worried about. It's more directed towards Monsanto without saying mm-hmm. Monsanto, oh, but that'll, sure. that'll be, yeah. I'm, I'm spoiler alert, I guess, for the, for the blog post coming out. Yeah. But it, I think that for this particular situation, it was silly for them to even make a sort of vocal out there commitment for non-GMO because right. it's like a check that they can't cash because I, I just kind of feel like they they do they do understand this on some level, but the way it's painted to consumers just I, I still I feel like they could do a little bit more in the way of communication and maybe change some of it. But um but it's it's been interesting though. I know it's it's ridiculous the amount of time I've spent like writing about and talking about and communicating with a meal delivery service. But I like in my own weird little way, I'm just like Hey, maybe it's just a conversation that can be had in a little bit of a public way to make people think. So, right. yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's kind of our thing where, you know, we're about having open conversation with people that are engaging in a genuine manner. Yeah. So, so that uh, sticks with the show here. But also tonight we are sponsored by Kickstarter that I, I don't know what to say my role is on this uh, co- co-conspirator. I, yeah, I think I think co-conspirator is definitely the right way to put this because yeah, tell tell the people it's, what it is. It's it, it's it, I mean it's called offensive crayons, and we just took some normal normal crayons mm-hmm. and gave them gave them uh, some different names. Like, yeah, they're they're not the names that you'll find in the kindergarten crayon Crayola box. Like no, it's twenty four crayons and such as travel ban brown or. Uh, privilege. Just privilege. Instead of, yeah, Yeah. just privilege, but that's, you know, instead of just the the white color. Yes. If you want to check it out, that'd be cool. Uh, we've already gotten quite a few backers already. We just went live with it. This is, we're recording this on Wednesday, May 24th, 20 backers, and we just, uh, launched it this afternoon. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I I need to, I need to throw just, I mean, I'm, I don't have a lot of money to throw around anywhere these days, but I will, I will put some towards offensive crayons for sure. Go to offensivecrayons.com. Not offensive, but offensivecrayons.com. We'll have a link to the Kickstarter. You have to do it now because I don't know when you're going to listen to it. Like that's that's the magic of do it now. Podcast yeah, just tell is, me to just do it now. Is, yeah, you have to do it now because who knows? Who knows when I said you have time? Because there is no time. Time is a social construct, just like a penis. So, oh, good God! All right, are we going We are done. <laughs> we don't have time for that. We are done now. And why don't you just tell us who we are? We are the Science Enthusiasts Podcast, and my name is Dan. And as as oh, I skipped to the next line, trying to yeah. trying to catch like what was going to be said and come up with something else because I don't look at this before yeah, no. like we have recorded. No. Uh, 
But it says, I, it, as always, I'm joined by my ridiculously brilliant friend, Natalie. That's me. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's me. That's me. <laughs> I have to assert my presence. I'm here. And, I'm here. I'm, and I have yeah. to mute my phone, too, because my BFFs are... Just hitting you up? Long. Your squad? Yeah. Your squad is just... This was a, just this was a professional operation here. It's super professional, yeah. And um, Speaking of super professional... God of the Why week. don't you tell us about our God of the Week? All right. So um, so Hannah Hannah is an Earth Mother goddess from the Middle East. <laughs> and um, so, yeah. So she's a she's like a source of ultimate wisdom and she's super opinionated, like, you know, kind of a strong lady. Um, but, you know, no, no God is perfect. All and- women are strong. <laughs> women can do anything men can do, only better. Yeah. Yes. But so anyways, this lady, she's she she is a little imperfect because sometimes she gets a little temperamental and ragey. And the thing, as women do. Not all women. I don't know. Hashtag on hashtag. Yeah, like whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, so she when she gets really ragey and mad, though, the whole earth just gets kind of fucked up and depressed. Like, <laughs> like, like when I was reading the story, it's like, how, I didn't like, have Donald Trump. Oh, you know what? Maybe we're in like a Hannah Hannah rage moment right now. And it just never gonna fucking end. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> so I know, I'm exhausted. I know, seriously. But it's like the kind of thing where, like, when she's mad, like kids are just kind of left to fend for themselves because their parents are a depressed mess and all this. Oh my god, she's what? This this is the one true god. We're in her reign right now, and the world is just fucked because she's pissed off. And we have Donald Trump. It all makes sense. But but eventually, the anger and the rage comes to an end, and this this darkness like sinks into the earth and we're all good again so maybe that's gonna happen sometime and then just other random fact about her she has some like magical bee that flies around like buzzing around her doing things like (laughs) going and finding other gods who have bailed on their responsibilities i love these stories they just they are funny but people and make no sense. And they make no sense. Hashtag religion. So, um, yeah, and I guess this whole episode is kind of uh, religion focused because we have our interview with BJ Kramer and then our Why We Love the Internet. We have already recorded because we inter- we interviewed Mel Rice of the Normalized Atheism campaign. So, um, yeah, buckle in for some religion or unreligioning or something. That's not science. <laughs> it's not a science podcast. It's not science. <laughs> the little intro section of his Facebook profile because I, you know, did the social media stalking today. Um, BJ Kramer is a high-functioning computer nerd, former Orthodox Jew, and importantly now an atheist and skeptic. So we are thrilled to welcome him to the show tonight to talk about life as an Orthodox Jew, the path to skepticism, and, um, you know, we'll include the time he ate some bacon with some famous magicians. So um, BJ, welcome to the Science Enthusiast podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here thank our mutual friend Alice for making this magic friend happen. of the show friend of the show and just friend Alice is, and Alice friend is and amazing and let's be honest yeah. she's kind of a producer is the producer of the show so we're gonna start like for listeners who might not be familiar with Judaism we hear things like orthodox Judaism modern orthodox reform Zionism can you talk about the different kinds of Judaism just to like frame sure. This world for sure, sure. Um, 
I can I could talk about it mostly to the degree that which I understood it growing up myself, which is not a very good way of looking at things. But I'll start with that. Uh, so I grew up Orthodox, and I went from I guess you'd say modern Orthodox in some of the places I lived when I was quite young. And then as I got older, the family sort of moved to the right, as indeed did much of the Orthodox community in America in general, but we moved faster. Um, I'll go through some of the details of that as we go on, but I should point out that there's one, there's one fact that is true, no matter where you are on the Jewish religiosity spectrum, anywhere left to right on that spectrum. A, a friend of mine, a very funny guy in LA, Gary Shapiro, once said to me, there's, there's a fact that's true for all Jews on that spectrum. No matter where you are, anybody to your right is crazy, and anyone to your left isn't even Jewish. And that's kind of the way we always looked at it. Um, you know, the conservative and reformed Jews, my mother would actually like say conservative Jews, and then she'd like mock spit on the ground because it was such a terrible thing uh, for people to, to know better and yet not follow the rules. Uh, so they, they were worse than the completely unaffiliated Jews who didn't know any better. Those, um, those those jerks. Yeah, exactly. Can I, can I say that? Am I committing a hate crime now? I don't know. Probably. Yeah, uh, we'll burn you later. <laughs> so uh, there's this. I guess. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. A little historical perspective. So, and I'm terrible with history, so I'm going to make some stuff up. So maybe 150 years ago or so in Europe, uh, the Enlightenment vis-a-vis -vis Judaism began. And uh, we started having people publicly calling for the abandonment of the old ways. Um, it turns out that I was raised, you know, with this sort of mythological thinking that Jews were always Orthodox. That was the kind of Judaism that was historically accurate. Uh, it turns out that the reality is Jews have had some religious and a lot of not religious people mixed in, even in the shtetls, even long before that. But, you know, in the last two centuries, it broke out into real divisions. Um, the, the result of European enlightenment in Judaism was mostly reform Judaism, which was a, uh, a real, a real change. They kind of got rid of all the rules, um, to the point right now where there are functioning atheist reform rabbis. It, it's really hard for me to know how that all works. There's also smaller, even less Jewish kind of things like reconstructionist Judaism and humanistic Judaism and all these things that have very little to do, um, with what Judaism was once upon a time or even now. Uh, but you have Orthodox and you have Hasidic, and those are the people who stick to all the rules. Like where I said that everybody to your left isn't even Jewish, once you're Orthodox, that doesn't really ring true anymore. As strict as I was, I still wasn't as strict as some of the Hasidic people, but they would see me as a completely valid Jew, but socially they wouldn't talk to me very much. You know, those groups are, are pretty isolated. Um, Let's then wrap this up. I'm talking so much about this thing. So the basic things you're going to care about. Uh, um, the Orthodox believe in uh, the primacy of keeping the mitzvahs, the, the commandments, of which there are 613. What those are varies according to different rabbinic commentaries over the years. There are many, many thousands of rabbinically imposed rules that fall under those primary 613. The modern Orthodox are much more willing to give up some of the... Uh, more strict things that aren't necessarily spelled out word for word in the Bible. Um, most obviously things like mode of dress, integrating with the rest of the world, but the big deals, you know, keeping the Sabbath and keeping kosher, even modern Orthodox people tend to take that very seriously. Uh, most of them even take the laws of family purity, which you got into a few weeks ago, 
um, and I'll talk more about later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even among the modern Orthodox, you know, where the women generally don't cover their hair and can wear pants and whatever, uh, that is still kept a lot. Uh, not, you know, not necessarily all the strictures that I had, but they do tend to to keep that. Um, so yeah, growing up, I was kind of modern Orthodox, and by the time I left, my family was what they often call black hat or yeshivish. It's actually quite a bit like your, your previous guest whose name I'm blanking on. I apologize. Katya. Uh, yeah. Katya, yes. Yeah. Uh, it sounded to me like like um, they were similar enough backgrounds. Well, because when I was reading um, your the post that you had about, you know, kind of everything leading up to bacon, um, the, yes. like one of the sentences that stuck out was that for the Orthodox people, Judaism you said, isn't as much a religion as it's an all-encompassing environment in which, like, within, yeah. like, where life yeah, plays out. Your entire so life. everything is And that is, that. That, that statement probably wouldn't apply to most modern Orthodox. Okay. Uh, that's kind of where the line is drawn, where they're, like, their lives are mostly normal, mm -hmm. but they do these rules, whereas once you get kind of strict, it's everywhere. So, um, examples. You know, what I'm supposed to do as an Orthodox yeah. Jew, uh, get up in the morning. There is a particular kind of hand washing I am supposed to do immediately. Uh, there is an endless litany of blessings. In fact, on a typical day, an Orthodox Jewish male should say over 100 discrete blessings, depending on, you know, for different functions. Um, yeah, uh, there is a particular way to put on and tie your shoes. There's innumerable <laughs> laws about the actual prayer service itself and every morning uh the prayer service uh is anywhere from a half hour to an hour or a half sometimes on some of the special days uh but you know there's the tefillin the flactories that you put on the leather boxes that go on the head and on the arm and there's numerous laws about exactly how to strap those on and what can and can't be done when you're wearing them uh so you know I, that's what I'm, I'm not even up to 8 a.m and those are the rules that i've had to deal with so far on a given day. I, was saying, I, was, I, I already want to go back to bed because it's <laughs> a lot of And I did many times, and that's happening. why I was kicked out of a lot of rabbinical schools. I was not a, very, <laughs> I was not a diligent student. I was, and uh, so where, like, these, where do the rules come from? Ah. Um, <laughs> so the, the primary <laughs> source of uh, Jewish rabbinical thought is the Talmud. And this is a okay. almost comically large collection of books. I think it was codified in the ninth or 10th century. I'm not positive uh, in what is now Iran and another. Uh, yeah, there. Yes. And another version was uh, done by the Jews that were living in what is now Israel. Uh, so there were two separate sort of camps and they made two competing Talmuds. But the, the Babylonian Talmud is the main one. It's the largest and it's the most authoritative. That is ostensibly the collected writings of all the major Jewish rabbis from the previous millennium or so since the destruction of the Second Temple in Jerusalem. So, uh, you know, for the thousand years or so, we had what was known as the Mishnah, which is sort of this collection of the famous rabbis of the time of the Second Temple, their writings, their rule book, essentially. And that's pretty big, and it expands quite a bit on the Old Testament. But it actually says, well, you know, the verse in Leviticus says these words, and therefore we extract this information, and this is what we do. But it's, it's really um, abbreviated because it had to be memorized. A thousand years later, they start writing this down with just a staggering amount of commentary. So your typical page of the Talmud starts off with a few sentences of Mishnah, and then a thousand years' worth of rabbinic commentary is added below in a mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic with no vowels or punctuation marks. And then in the margins are many other commentaries from further centuries. 
um, somebody described it to me as as the first blog. And it, it kind of is a little bit in the sense that it's it's commentaries <laughs> upon that commentary. it's comment sections and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, over the years, many rabbis have attempted to sort of sift through all of that and make a simple rule book. And the most common one that Orthodox Jews use nowadays is a couple hundred years old and uh, is still very, very large, but is is it misses most of the conversation about how the rules came about and it just distills what we have to do. The, the thing that people find most difficult to understand about Orthodox Judaism is that the following of the rules is the main thing, less the spirit of the law. You have to, at numerous times, and I'll get to this later, when I was sort of doubting and I talked to rabbis, the first response I always got was, don't worry about it. Just do everything you're supposed to do and don't think too much. And, and, and yeah, it's a little different. Like, so so do, do these things, do, like, don't think too hard about it, but like, I mean, you're supposed like, to, but, is, you know, because I'm doubting, I shouldn't think too hard. Yeah, yeah. But the, <laughs> so what? So what? Do, so you follow all these rules, right? Mm -hmm. Is that supposed to lead to some sort of like okay. reward, or you just? Do yeah, it? absolutely. Um, Jews aren't really big into explaining why about anything. Okay. In fact, in fact, there are two major classes of rules, and one of them essentially means rules without meaning. Rules that reasons, you know, like why is it that you can't make cloth mixed of wool and linen? You know, the Bible says don't do that. Why? Because God said so. And there's the Talmud talks about reasons for things like this, but it's always done with a understanding that we humans aren't meant to understand the reasons. We are meant to do if we happen to figure out some reason that makes sense good for us. So with that established as the reason behind so much of what I was brought up with as a child, you kind of learn. Uh, not to ask because there's no point ultimately the answer could be a shrug and god said so 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 is, the, so is there like a sect of like nihilist jews where it's like nothing matters like we just do things just uh no i suppose the the difference well, that, is that, was that, that was a joke all 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 amount of jewish study is considered not only good but necessary it is in fact what young jewish men are supposed to do with all of their free time study 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 just Learn everything there is to know about Jewish law. I and did that for them. many years. Yeah. And so, you know, like, obviously we mentioned before that we had Katya come on this show and talk about one of the um, stranger rules that I've you heard. Can it. You can say it. You can say it. Yeah. We're all adults here. We, we talked, I mean, we talked more about vaginal discharge than I ever expected to talk about, like, anywhere. Yeah, like and I the guess entirety I never, of my 33 years of living combined. Yeah. Yes. I mean, and, I, and I'm a woman and I've never talked that much about vaginal <laughs> discharge before. And I never expected to talk about it, though, like in the context of religion. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, so, yeah. And, and so we, we got to hear about, you know, dirty panties and rabbis from Katya's point of view. Oh, but yeah. what I, so what I want to ask you is like, what was it like? I mean, because you were married at the time, right? That you were. And so you're you were the husband whose wife had to drop panties in a mailbox of a rabbi. Does that sound about right? Pretty much. Like, Pretty right? Much. I, but, but that's such a yeah. fucking absurd statement to make. It is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beg off on describing anything that was personal because I don't really have yes. my ex-wife oh, no, no, to talk yeah. about it. Um, but I can tell you that there was one time I was in the backyard of a synagogue in LA talking to the rabbi and as the sun is getting close to setting, he's rushing me, trying to get me to identify the color of a stain that I saw 
on my wife's underwear for whatever reason. I was supposed to bring it to him and I forgot why I couldn't or didn't. And he was trying to get me to sort of point out something around us that was the same color so that he could make a ruling. And it was clear that he was trying to get me to point to a particular color that would allow him to say it was okay. But he and wanted... when you say okay, we're talking okay to, like for people who didn't listen to that episode. Oh, yes. I bet... It's okay to, to like... In this case, it wouldn't be okay to, like to have her. sex. It wouldn't even be okay to touch. In this case, it would be okay to continue counting the seven clean days oh, before so she you can go to the ritual bath. If there was a, if this was a problematic color, she would have to start the week over. So, so you was, couldn't even touch her yet. Like, that wasn't even the discussion. It was, it was waiting a week mm-hmm. exactly. until you could touch her. And, Does that make apparently, sense? Yeah, I know it's all sense. perfectly rational. Apparently, I, I, the rule is that the rabbi must make his judgment of the color by sunlight, not artificial light of any kind. So that's why he was sort of rushing me before sunset. Because that, yeah, and that's consistent. Like uh, the time the sun goes down never changes throughout the year. And the color like of the light that. during sunset is identical. Yeah. Because the yes. earth is flat and the sun's always in the same spot. Well, you should just use the power of Joshua to stop the sun. <laughs> oh my God. Like, I, I just, I can't, I can't imagine being on either side of that. Like the, the woman having to drop off underwear or the, the man having to like have a conversation with a rabbi about <laughs> underwear. Like it, it's it's so strange and i mean that, that just does not in any way seem like it it works to relationship or that it works like full or stop that it works it works full stop yeah like, i guess i didn't need to continue it. after that i wonder um, if it's possible that it might work within its confines of such a strict lifestyle um at least it seems consistent where you're so limited in so many ways about what you could do to enjoy yourself this sort of notion where about half the time you guys can't touch each other, so you know you, you jump on each other like crack-addled rabbits as soon as she comes back from the ritual bath. Yeah, that's what happens. Um, it, I, I guess it kind of makes sense in that own weird way. I'd well, you certainly... gotta have the lows so you can have the highs. Yeah, I don't think it's optimal or ideal, but that's the way they sell it. <laughs> and, and the really tragic thing about it to me is uh, my four sisters and uh, thirteen nieces, you know, are all being brought up in a school where this is what they're taught. They're, you know, more than anything useful. They're taught the ridiculously detailed minutia of these laws and they are scared to death about it by the time they get out and get married. It is, you know, the fear of God and eternal damnation and having, you know, heaven forbid, if you're a sinner, you'll be more likely to have, you know, damaged children, that kind of thing. They, they tell girls and yeah, it's just depressing and, Really? So, so that's, so it's like, follow these rules, follow the, the laws. And yeah. very few people are willing to do, you know, direct cause and effect claims. Although the, the Talmud does, there's a, um, in the, I believe it's in the book that talks about the laws of marriage on page 20 uh, B, if memory serves me correctly, there's a long list of sex acts and what horrible things happen to children as a result, if you do them. Oh, so, so, yeah. Yeah, Don't fun do times. It because children, because yeah. who who wants who wants to be that person that like yeah. you know? Unfortunately, uh, you know, Rabbi Cook, yeah. who was my tenth grade teacher, who had the sad task of teaching that particular section to us, had to preface the part about how if you look at your wife's genitals, you will have blind children. 
does not mean there's no other way your children could be blind. He had to tell us because he has a blind daughter. So <laughs> awkward. Oh my God, that was so awkward. That's so awkward. Yeah, it was. That's so awkward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess like, but so much of this is just a setup for really awkward conversations. Oh yeah. It, it just... That's- that, so I'm just this, I'm just looking up like as we were talking I'm just looking up like some of the some of the things you're saying and I looked up just Jewish sex acts or Talmud sex acts right. just just to see <laughs> what happens I'm going well and after the show like this is a different podcast I'm going to do it with like just as an image search so that'll be <laughs> like I said different <laughs> different uh, different show different podcast but the top <laughs> the top result I just have to share this. Is I can't. take a breath. Take a breath. I don't know that I can say this without laughing. Jewfaq.org. I don't okay. know why that's so goddamn funny. <laughs> Just the link is Jewfaq.com. Okay, so, so I got people, that out. Yeah, but it, it's an article about kosher sex. Is it so, uh, Shmuley Boteach? That's a he's a popular um, rabbi. He has a book called Kosher Sex. Oh. I, that is that is uh, fantastic. Oh, this uh, the copyright says Tracy Rich. I don't know who that is. So yeah, well, I clearly Tracy does not know about his or her uh, kosher sex nearly as well. As well. Yeah. So, well. so yeah. So so there's that. So so sex is is a whole world with the ritual around just or even just like when you can. Yeah. There's, there's rules about everything. There's rules when about you can, everything. how you can. Mm-hmm. What you're supposed to be thinking about, like you know, everything. So everything. So so it really like, it just kind of permeates all right, like t- all bits of your existence from like the time you get up and put your shoes on. Yes, and you will so certainly, you like I said, you can find Orthodox Jews who are somewhat yeah. less strict than I was. Didn't even seem like that much less, and they will say, "Well, it wasn't like that at all for them," and that's probably yeah. true for a lot. Um, sort of the right edge of Orthodox and all Hasidic people, their lives are like this, completely just dictated soup to nuts by the religion. So, so for people who like, maybe are there people who kind of pick and choose which rules they follow? And then Uh, if so, how do they justify that to themselves? ah, um, Interestingly, just within my lifetime, Orthodoxy in America got quickly very strict. I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's like the religious right among Christians as well. I don't know. <laughs> but my understanding is that conservative Judaism is getting squeezed and doesn't seem to have much longer. I could be wrong about that, but that's the impression I get. Uh, reform and other branches of Judaism are also dwindling and people are just being ethnically Jewish uh, without really any religious practice. And what remains is the Orthodox, which has steadily been moving further to the right. Um, the Orthodox that got left behind by this, which at the by the end of my marriage included me and most of my peer group, are now in is not I want to speak for everybody, but it is surprisingly common, and this is a very recent phenomenon, where there are large numbers of nominally Orthodox Jews that affiliate with Orthodox and are ostensibly Orthodox, but don't really keep any rules they don't want to keep. Um, the 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 sort of nickname for this I've heard is Flexodox, and it's not and it's not a real thing. And like I said, this is only within the last decade or two that this is becoming surprisingly common. You go to the, the, the sort of the fringes of any uh, intense Orthodox neighborhood and you'll find all the people who don't want to leave completely, but just are fed up with all the rules. So that's starting. The internet, of course, is, is imploding this stuff. It's, it's just so hard to keep a lid on, you know, all the bullshit when it's all out there. So, of course, they try. They, um, some years ago, the 
<laughs> the powers that be of New York Jewry rented out City Field, the where the Mets play, and they had a symposium about the internet. Of course, no women were invited. Women had to go to a different stadium. Oh. Um, uh, so they yeah. rented out two stadiums? Yes, they did. They went Arthur Ashe Stadium, which is a much smaller tennis stadium, is, is where the women went. I was going to say. But here's the really, really funny part. The really funny part was this was meant to be a gathering to talk about the spiritual crisis that the internet represents and the best ways we can deal with it. But what it ended up being was rabbi after rabbi just railing against the internet, modernity, civilized society, you know, whatever it was. While at the same time, of course, the internet was used to carry the live stream of the speeches to the other stadium. <laughs> um, what struck me as particularly amusing about this little incident that happened a few years ago was that I was at my parents' house in, in Lakewood, New Jersey at the time, hotbed of orthodoxy. And uh, this was on a Sunday. And various relatives of mine, uh, two of my brothers-in-law and an uncle, all got in their car from Lakewood, New Jersey and drove to be part of this big internet rally thing or anti-internet rally thing. <laughs> at the same time, my ex-wife and a bunch of friends of mine we're running a protest in the parking lot about under the banner of the internet is not the problem on how rabbis are looking the other way at the rampant sex abuse within the Orthodox communities. I was happy to not be there because I had people on both sides of that one uh, and I stayed away. But yeah, it's um, I am, I am very plugged in to both sort of the, the right extreme. I mean, I have gone to the national society of Hebrew day schools conference I did for years and uh, on multiple occasions, I sat at the head table with the big rabbis, you know, cause uh, my job was setting up uh, computers for them and they liked me. I don't know, but uh, yeah. In fact, I did once get to have an audience with the generally considered biggest non Hasidic rabbi in America because I had evidence that a rabbi in California was carrying on sexual relationships with teenage girls under his care all apparently above age of consent, but definitely, definitely not a kosher situation. And uh, this big rabbi asked me, how long ago was the last offense, as far as I was aware? Mm -hmm. I told him about two years. And he said, ah, well, then we can assume he has done his repentance and you may not tell anyone else about this. Of course. Oh, just whatever. Like, he, like thanks, but no thanks. God, I don't he do says. Yeah, he says, I'm sorry, and that's how it works. Incidentally, to his credit, I not his credit, but to another rabbi's credit, the rabbi in L.A. who, not the, not the perv, the one who was trying to get me to identify the shade of red of my wife's discharge, he ended up taking up the case, despite what the big rabbi said. He was like, no, no, we got we to gotta shut this guy down. So, and eventually good. he did. So good for him. Good. Okay, but... Like years. Yeah, wow. Yeah. But the, well, and, but so, and, how many, and how many kids, like, during that period of time, like... Yeah, it's hard to know. Well, right, and they're not like law enforcement. They're not trained. Well, I mean, maybe they have their own like shitty little training, yeah. but they're not trained to investigate things like that. They're not trained to forensic interview kids. They're not trained to do any of that shit. But yet, for some reason, because God, they think that it's acceptable for them to not only not report that authorities who like do that shit for a living, but then allow these other kids to be victimized. Absolutely. It's, uh, if you ever get a ex Hasidic person, um, you'll hear uh, mm -hmm. really horrible stories. But one interesting thing is that I know, I know more men who've left Hasidic communities than women. Uh, so I don't know how the girls fare that much, but the boys have told me um, they've all said the same thing and they've been, they're different sects, different backgrounds, uh, different cities. They all say that 
pretty much nobody gets through their full education without being sexually victimized in some way at least once. This is just so common. Um, well, it's and not, that yeah, is a fun and fact. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's not necessarily uncommon, in, even like regardless of whatever like re, you know denomination or religion you adhere to. Uh, but but you once you find out about it, you gotta tell people who like do that for a living, and not somebody who thinks that they're empowered by some sky wizard to say, well, just promise that you're really sorry, and you know you can keep molesting kids for until yeah. you know somebody else big big enough stink about it. Yeah, people have been hoping for various you know spotlight moments, mm-hmm. uh, and there have been cases, but it really seems like it hasn't blown open yet, and the community pays a lot of lip service to fighting this kind of thing, but there's still way too many uh, people who would rather cover stuff up. So again, you know, this is much more of a Hasidic problem, sadly, uh, than what I'm used to, but don't be surprised if in the future you start seeing more and more of the stories coming out of the uh, right-wing Orthodox areas. There was just a really horrifying story coming out of Israel of which, you know, yeah, years of cover-ups and multiple child rapes. It was really horrifying. Fun times. Yeah. So I'm glad. Uh, yeah. So that, I'm glad yeah. we took this turn on the show. I'm glad yeah. <laughs> we, but, we kept it pretty light. But, but really, though, like, because, you know, we, we talked about this um, to some extent, too, when we had Lydia Finch on, who is an ex Jehovah's Witness. And right. she talked about this and how they had their two wit, they have their two witness rule and the JW faith and like just mm-hmm. all this stuff. And, and it is like Dan said, this stuff happens in all walks of life and in all areas, but it's how these religious groups handle it. Yeah, it's going to happen. Like, it, it, it's not okay that it happens. It's not a good thing at all. It's something that happens. It's yeah. how you respond to the situation that is the concern. And fucking it up. Yeah, <laughs> even further. So, yeah. Um, so you, yeah, let's, let's see, but where, where, where do we go from here? But I, I guess what I want to know, though, <laughs> you're the, like, you're, you're you know, the master or mistress of segues. I, like I am, I am the mistress of segues, but like, so we, like, we've covered a lot of just background about Judaism. bizarre, fucked up, <laughs> all this kind of background. Yeah. And so, and so you're, you're sitting here talking to us because you are, you no longer practice all of I these rituals and rules and whatever because god kind of thing so what i want to know from you then is your path to like where you are now like what was it a series of moments that had you questioning was there an aha moment like that's what i want to know is how you got how you got here okay um well first of all i i hope that we'll invite listeners to i wrote all this up i wrote it as a story and uh after some other time listeners we you know perfectly content to read all that you get all the details but i'll go through some of the yeah some of the fine salient points i was as i mentioned earlier not a particularly great student but i didn't i wasn't a troublemaker nor did i really doubt um at least not in any well constructed mental way um I, I I coasted. I was an easygoing guy and I just went with the flow. This is what we're supposed to do. Okay. But I, I would say that for the first 30 some odd years of my conscious life, I accepted the reality of Orthodox Judaism as just sort of a, a fact of the universe that had to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and whatever doubts I might've had were always sort of couched in the, uh, well, this has to be true somehow. I have to make sense of it. But, mm-hmm. you know, I can't, po- so I never really even sat there and, and tried to piece out what might be incorrect about all of this. No, I just, 
I let it go. And I, I suppose that can be traced back to high school when in ninth or 10th grade, I did attempt a few times to discuss with rabbis weird doubts I had. Well, funny, atheism didn't pop into my head at all, but I did wonder. We had prophets throughout the centuries, and then we have this Jesus guy, and who says he wasn't one of the prophets? Like, why aren't we listening to him? You know, why didn't we gang up and say, Joshua, you're full of shit. We're not going to follow you. You know, at some point, Jews accepted their prophets, and then they stopped. And that was bothersome to me, because it seems like I'm pinning a whole lot on the judgment of, you know, some Bronze Age morons. <laughs> like, you know, I maybe I really should look into this Jesus guy. You know, I didn't, I didn't take it seriously as sort of an emotional thing that I wanted to pursue, but I was really wondering why it was such an obvious truth that he was a false prophet and that Christianity was misguided. But fairly early on, um, I was strongly dissuaded from having conversations like this. The rabbis were not fond of it. it it's, it's funny. I keep meeting people who say, oh, Jews love questioning. No, no, they don't. <laughs> they don't. They like, they like dumb questions. And they like, you know, they like simple questions. But more often, they like any question where you'll accept a hand-waving answer. And then it's a great question. But real questions that require real answers, they really don't like. Um, and I found that out the hard way many years later, like two decades later, when I finally revisited these doubts. Or they were different at that time. But I, I went along, you know, with what I was supposed to be for the most part. Like I said, I, I kind of coasted. You know, uh, all my brother went and got rabbinical ordination from the same school my father did. I, you know, didn't quite finish high school. And then I went off to Israel for a little while and bounced around from different schools. I did end up studying quite a bit and I kept the rules. I just wasn't that into it. I wasn't really emotionally invested. It was just, that's reality. That's what you got to do. You just did it, right? Like, yeah. that's, that was yeah. life. That was it. And it never seriously occurred to me to stop. Like even things that nobody would know about. Uh, just my heart of hearts is like, I don't necessarily like it, but it, it never seemed like a real option to change. Um, <laughs> two things started happening at the same time um, in my 30s. Uh, one is that my marriage started to kind of fall apart. It wasn't bad. Uh, we're still very close and she's kind of my best friend and uh, she's remarried and has a daughter and they're wonderful, but uh, we weren't happy. And there's an interesting thing about Orthodox Jews. They, they allow divorce and it's not like Catholics, you know, it's, it's totally cool, but it's a community tragedy. And I found that once people knew that me and my wife were having a tough time, I suddenly got a lot of space. Nobody checked in on me if I didn't show up at shul, you know, like, uh, Friends didn't come over as often because things are awkward. And I was like, I felt great about it. <laughs> I was like, okay, I can, <laughs> right. I can now sort of like relate so much to that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I felt like I could breathe now and I can really think about stuff. Because around the same time, I started learning science. Um, I don't know for sure what kicked it off, but there was one, one story that may have been it or it may have just been one of the things that got me going. But uh, in the job I currently have, I've been working at the same place for 20 years, but uh, maybe 10 years ago, give or take, uh, I shared an office with my friend Kevin. Kevin was my only atheist friend. He's basically my only non-Jewish friend. Um, but he was an atheist and a libertarian. Such strange things for me to discover. And <laughs> very smart guy and very... Uh, I knew exactly what he felt about my crazy religion with my yarmulke and, you know, <laughs> my prayers and whatever, but he was polite, you know, and civil, he, you know, didn't mince words, but he was, he was good about it. Uh, 
But we shared an office, so everything gets discussed, and eventually the topic of evolution came up. And somewhat panicked, because I knew I didn't know what I was talking about, I felt that I had to... I, I, I was the placeholder for Orthodox Judaism. I had to toe the party line and represent what I'm supposed to believe, whether or not I really did. And I didn't really, it's not that I disbelieved what I was taught about evolution. I just knew I didn't know anything. But I dutifully repeated what rabbis had told me, which essentially, and I toned this down for Kevin, but essentially is that the world scientists know perfectly well that evolution is a ridiculous joke of a non-theory, but they have to come up with something. Otherwise, the obvious truth of, you know, theistic creation will be obvious. They'll be out of jobs. They have to be able to come up with some kind of nonsense. So there's this sort of quiet conspiracy, but really deep down in their hearts, all scientists know that evolution's bullshit. And there's so many problems with the science. It's pretty obvious to anybody who takes a look. So I didn't say that to Kevin. I kind of watered it down. We sat back to back in our offices. We kind of stared at computers in opposite corners. And after I said this and sort of drifted off into mumbling because I had no idea what I was saying, Kevin didn't respond. I, I turned slowly to look at him and he was just, he turned and stared at me and he was just staring at me with pity. Just a look of pity on his face. Like, uh, and he just silently turned back to his computer and we didn't talk the rest of the day. And I was furious. I was furious at him for um, just, you know, his attitude. Like, how dare he assume that his scientific knowledge was so much better than my own? But it probably was. I figured it probably was. So I figured I'd better learn something. So I, uh, I started learning a little bit. Um, first book on the topic I read was The Selfish Gene. And I went through it slowly. I do like a chapter at a time here and there. And during that time, I... I started this project in earnest. I read voraciously, making up for my lack of a real science education. And I would talk to rabbis and friends a lot. And the project was over before it started. The, um, just the, the, the poor quality of the religious apologetics was, was so startlingly clear to me from the get-go that I spent weeks basically saying, it can't be that stupid. You know, it really... It can't be that obviously incorrect once you start looking at, at reality. Uh, and yet it was. Um, and the higher I went up the rabbinical food chain, the more, frankly, ignorant they were of logic and evidence, and, you know, just making sense and, and basic facts about the world. Uh, they may know far more of, you know, arcane Aramaic phrases from the ninth century, but that didn't help me very much at the time. <laughs> So it's like the house of cards just like, like comes tumbling down. Like once yeah. you start to say like, I'm going to step outside of that ideology, that worldview yeah. and, and start looking at what, you know, well, yeah. Uh -huh. Evolution crystallized. Gene, yeah. uh, towards the end of the selfish gene, there's a chapter on reciprocal altruism. Um, and he talks about the, the computer work that was done in the, I think in the seventies. Um, and I'm going to forget some important scientists names in this, but Apparently, they, uh, they ran a contest to see who can come up with the best formula for the iterated prisoner's dilemma. Are you familiar with this? The, um, and it, it, it turns out that, you know, tit for tat, trusting first and then getting immediate revenge if somebody screws you is a very efficient way for computers to do it. And it turns out that that's what they find all over the animal kingdom. And this explains how altruism, at least what we see as altruism, is not just a byproduct of evolution. It, it is a necessary one. 
And that to me, when I read that was like, it almost seemed like the idea of kindness had to be the last thread of supernaturalism that I was holding onto or something. Mm -hmm. And, and once it seemed clear, like, no, we're just, we're just complicated meat machines, uh, you know, plodding along, getting incrementally better. Uh, you know, it, it, it's this weird shift that happened in my head very quickly. And all of a sudden like, okay, so that's true. Rabbis are full of shit. Don't know what they're talking about. Is that true across the board? You know, or maybe they're just wrong on this one thing. That's what I spent a few months doing, but it was, it was really clear. There was no there, there. They, there was no wisdom that needed all these trappings. There was certainly no deep truth. It was, it was just blind leading the blind. And it was all very kind of sad. I grew up in a loving, friendly environment with good people. You know, I, I wasn't resentful. It was just way wrong. <laughs> and just, you know, like walk away. I'm like, okay, I'm really just done with that. So, so what are the, I guess, like the views that, that at least what you were taught, what are, what are those as, as they pertain to evolution? You know, the world is 5,700, whatever it is, 70 some odd years old. Um, you know, the flood was literal. There are numerous explanations for how the world makes sense. And I believe this is part of why Orthodox Judaism is moving to the right. They, it's, they have to insulate themselves. As more and more facts become common knowledge, they, they have to deny them. You, you have to separate yourself from society in order for that to work. I had a conversation with my mom a few years ago, not long after I was sort of out. Um, I don't know why evolution came up, but she said, kind of volunteered, Oh, I'm sure that's all correct. All of the science has to be perfectly correct. So the rabbis you follow absolutely deny that. And they claim the world is under 6,000 years old and that none of it's true. And she's like, oh yes, they, they have to be right too. And they certainly are correct. So those, those two things are in conflict. And she said, I know, but it's not my job to square that. I don't need to make sense of it. Science is right. Rabbis are right. That's good enough for me. Why not both? Why not both? Yeah. And let's just all like, uh, yeah. I'm like, okay, but, uh, you're kind of not making sense of what the word right means, but whatever. Right. <laughs> so, so as you kind of, you know, you, you learned a lot more about science, you kind of figured out that all this stuff that had been, you know, part of your life, it, it just, that's not how it works. Then Correct. how did you, how did you feel as you came to that realization? Um, so as I mentioned, I was getting divorced at the same time. Mm -hmm. I felt different at different times. So let's start with this. I, yeah. There was a point in 2008 when I realized, look in the mirror, uh, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in anything supernatural. I don't believe in any gods. It wasn't for another six to eight months, maybe, maybe more, until I was able to eat non-kosher food. That was like this weird mental block. Couldn't do it. Uh, everything else I had no problem with. But that, that was like, I mean, literally to the point of I have tried, I've held things in my mouth and, you know, the airplane was flying into the hangar and I just couldn't seal the deal. Are we, are had, we not doing phrasing anymore? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that there was, yeah. a, so th during that time, that's when I was, I was kind of maniacal. Um, I was also going to the gym pretty regularly at the time. And I listened to uh, Penn Gillette's podcast at the, well, his radio show. Um, this is not the current one. He's doing Penn Sunday school. This was Penn radio, which was syndicated on various FM stations. Um, so <clears throat> I was getting fed up with all the rabbis I was talking to cause it wasn't going anywhere. And I was listening to Penn a lot and he was, well, he's an atheist and he's a rather outspoken one, but he's also 
got a an interesting core of uh, humanism that I, I liked very much. And I decided at some point that I was going to thank him and Richard Dawkins and various other people who helped me in, at different times along the way. So Dawkins was first. Um, you know, his, I, I don't want to sound too fanboyish, but the man is a good writer. And he, he, he skillfully, you know, took me by the hand and taught me the stuff I should have known already. And uh, with enough clarity um, and, and, you know, enjoyment that it, it worked right away. I actually did get the opportunity to thank him a couple times. Uh, awesome. And then, and then Penn, and a few others. Um, but the, but meeting Penn was was a big part of it. And I guess I might as well just jump into that. Yeah, yeah, because that I, I like that that part of kind of bringing you all the way there yeah. to where you ended up in Vegas with Penn and Teller. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So I knew nobody. I had no contacts. I I had almost no friends. Um, I left behind everything. I was living in an apartment in Riverdale in the Bronx. Uh, I'd go to work, I'd come home, I'd read science books. Um, that was what was going on in my life. Uh, eventually, um, actually, I'm sorry, this is, I was still married at the time when I met Penn. So um, still doing a lot of reading, a lot of thinking. I'm out in Vegas for work and on the plane out there, I mean, I've never seen this before or since, the snack they gave out on the planes were little microwave White Castle cheeseburgers, which if you've never had one, don't. They're really disgusting. Oh, we're oh. <laughs> Dan's like, I'm gonna go buy some now. No, I, I lived off of those my sophomore year of college. That's all they had. They oh, had no. this like shitty, like little oh. thing. Uh, mm. they are. It is. It is like they are not unlike pizza rolls in the or or, or life in general. And the beauty is in the struggle. <laughs> in that, it's just. It is just like miserable to consume and to eat or to live, but that's, I mean, that's the art of it. That's the enjoyment of it is, is, is the struggle. The Dan wow. Broadbent story. Fantastic. <laughs> so, so you had this, you had this cheeseburger like I, there for you, I, right? I, like just there. I, I was falling asleep on the plane. I was drifting in and out and I was literally daydreaming that I would go to Vegas and I'd go say hi to Pendulette after the Penn and Teller show. And I would tell him about being a former Orthodox Jew and he'd be so proud of his involvement and we'd be best friends forever. And we'd be, you know, lying in his backyard, eating strips of bacon together. You know, like I'm, I'm having this like weird daydream on the plane and I wake up and it's snack time and they give these little cheeseburgers. And I'm like, I can't eat that because I know I can't because it's not kosher and I keep trying, but I can't. And I'm like, fuck it. I'm actually daydreaming about somebody feeding me bacon. Like, this is so stupid. I can just do it. And I held this thing in my hand and it was, I can't imagine what the people next to me on the plane must have thought because I was literally going, ah, you know, like, I, I'm sorry for the people who can't see. I'm, I was, I was trying to force my hand into my mouth with this cheeseburger and I could not do it. Something it was, was just repelling. It was just blocking me like, ah, ah, maybe a little bit, ah, ah. nothing. And I was, and I, I failed and was so furious at myself. But uh, that night I went to see the Penn and Teller show. It was interesting. I was, I was going to Vegas for the first time in my life. And it was work. I was going to some technical conference. And um, all I could think of Vegas, you know, gambling, alcohol, hookers, uh, none of it seemed particularly appealing. Uh, I hate crowds. I was like, I'm going to hate Vegas. So the very first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to check into my hotel. And I'm going to go see the Penn and Teller, excuse me, Penn and Teller show because that'll make me happy and maybe it'll set the week off right. It's a great show. I highly recommend anybody goes to Vegas, go see the Penn and Teller show. 
they stand in the audience, uh, stand in the hallway outside and shake hands, sign autographs, pose for pictures for a long time after every show, and sometimes even longer than the show itself. And I did. I stood in line. I got something signed, and I chickened out. So I waited until the very end when the whole crowd dissipated, and I approached Penn alone. And um, to his credit, he didn't immediately mace me or call security, but he um, he did pause and turn around. And I just said I was a former Orthodox Jew, and through the course of you know various readings and you know, Richard Dawkins, and, but uh, listening to your show helped me get out of it. And it was really fun to look at his face and watch it change from a performer being polite to a fan mm-hmm. to someone who was now experiencing genuine pride. He was happy. Um, and then started asking me questions and wanted to know how long it's been and things like that. And I told him, uh, I, you know, I'm all done. It's within the last year. So I still haven't been able to eat non-kosher food. It's like a mental block, but I'm working on it. And he said, well, come on backstage with me and share my dinner. We'll get you over that hump. And like, it's, uh, is this real life? Exactly, it's exactly <laughs> what I was kind of daydreaming about on yeah. the plane. Um, I get backstage, Penn and Teller uh, go change afterwards. And they have this room backstage, they, the monkey room, they call it, where they eat dinner and entertain guests. Uh, I was there with um, one of the guys from the crew and Jonesy, the piano player, and uh, this other guy, Straz, who was a MIT scientist guy who was in town. I found out later for the same conference I was in town for, but he was giving a keynote address. And uh, he was an old friend of Penn's. He, yeah, he was a friend of Penn's. So, uh, you know, everybody started gathering around like, hey, well, what's, who, what's your deal, man? I'm like, well, Penn said I can share his dinner because it'll be the first non-kosher food I've ever eaten. And I'm, I'm freaking out. My hands are shaking. Not because there's anything. It's just, it's just you know, a, a rite of passage, you know, felt monumental. Yeah. Uh, Penn gets in there. He opens up his tray and he, he had his dinner that he had every single night, which was salmon and spinach which I told him was technically not kosher because it was cooked in a non-kosher kitchen and utensils and blah, blah. But I've eaten salmon. I've eaten spinach. Those, those can be made kosher. And it, I don't think tasting something I've tasted a hundred times before would sufficiently overcome the psychological block. So, so Pat, just not to interrupt you, but like to completely no, interrupt you, like what would a, like what's, how do you make a kosher kitchen? Ah, ah, so uh, uh, well, <laughs> all vegetables. <laughs> In, in, the basic is this a topic of another are, podcast? No, but all, the basic broad strokes are <laughs> all vegetable products are kosher inherently. The only exception to that is grapes for a weird reason. Um, animal products are two major classes. There are kosher animals, not kosher animals. Right. A non-kosher animal is nothing you can do about it. A kosher animal still has to be slaughtered in a very particular way. The meat has to be salted. There's a variety of things that have to be done um, right. in order for it to be kosher. So Penn looked around the room and said like, oh, how about that? We had, they had a plate of turkey sandwiches they always have there. For, um, for guests, and that is meat, sure. But again, I've had turkey. That would not be kosher turkey because it wouldn't have been slaughtered properly. <coughs> and they, it's a big meeting now. What are we going to do to Pop Beach's yeah. uh, not kosher cherry? <laughs> and they decide that the best thing to do is go to a restaurant um, across the hotel. So this is at the Rio All Suites Hotel and Casino um, where Penn and Teller have their own theater. And the six of us, Penn, Teller, me, this guy, Straz, Jonesy, the piano player, and Zeke, who was uh, one of the members of the crew, set out to the restaurant. Um, on the way, Zeke basically grabs me by the collar, throws me up against the wall, and two inches away from my face says, if you chicken out, I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, I am not fucking chickening out. So we're fun. going through uh, this. It was so good. I mean, but earlier than that, when I was trying to explain about kosher and non-kosher, everybody's like, I don't understand. Why can't you have that? It's not kosher. Wouldn't that work? And I, I got everybody quiet for a second. I said, well, the deal is that I want to have something that tastes like a non-kosher food I've never had before. Otherwise, and 
So Zeke was like, wait a minute, let me get this straight. That's not kosher, but it's not not kosher enough for what you want to do. I said, that's right. And he said, so you want to get fucked by a pig. <laughs> and I see, that's what I thought. That's where I thought we were going. Whenever he said he grabbed me, threw me up against the wall. I'm like, this just took a turn. I'm like, this is not throw me up against the wall. I, I thought I was doing. Gently positioned me towards the wall. Um, yeah. So I, I told him that, assuming he was speaking metaphorically, I am all about it. Anyway, we get to the restaurant. Uh, Penn and Teller sit me between them, the three other guys on the opposite side of the table, and they proceeded to order everything on the menu that I had never had before. It was enough food for twice as many people. But uh, you know, all this seafood stuff came first, a lobster biscuit, a shrimp cocktail, and crab cake, all this stuff. Eventually, a pork chop and a million other things. We all were figuring out what the best way to go about it was when Teller just grabbed a shrimp and just shoved it in my mouth. Just like... Just, just do it. <laughs> it's time. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. I guess we're done. Let's eat dinner. And we all ate. Um, but it wasn't until a bacon cheeseburger came out and I took the bacon strips out alone and, and ate them did I realize that that, that was when I was cured. <laughs> it, it took magic bacon powers to, uh, to really get me over it. It's funny, the next morning, I used my newfound eating powers to go like, I think I had breakfast at, at a Johnny Rockets or something and had the most obscene burger at like 10 a.m. And I was taking pictures of it. Like, oh my God, I'm going to send this to Penn. He'll be so proud of me. No, no, don't be the idiot. <laughs> Just eat, shut up and eat. Um, and then I was fine. But that's, that, that was the last vestige of my religious life getting, getting brushed away in, in grand fashion. So religion was cured by magic bacon. Magic bacon. And Penn and I have stayed friends ever since. Um, at TAM, uh, the amazing meeting for a few years, uh, Penn threw the bacon and donut party, and I was the supplier of the bacon for those events. Um, twice. I felt a little bad about this, but two separate people came up to me and told me that they were vegetarians for a very, very long time. One was forever. But for, in honor of me, they'll eat some bacon at my party. Oh, you're the bacon nice. guy. <laughs> Yeah. The, ba the bacon atheist. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that was, that was 2008. I got divorced in 2009. Uh, my, my project of playing catch up on my education continued for a couple of years. Um, that was it. Like shortly after I met Penn, he made a video about it online. He just sort of told this story. Uh, incidentally, it's also a chapter in his wonderful memoir, uh, God No. Signs you may already be an atheist and other magical tales. Highly recommended book. Early in the book is a chapter, King of the Ex-Jews, all about me. Go pick it up. It's fun. I have it. Um, and, and, you know, <laughs> and, it, and it's funny because when I read your, when I first read your post that you had written, I realized I've heard this story before. Yeah, from and the other then, perspective, yeah. And realized where I had heard the story. So, yeah. yes, it is, it's a fantastic story. And look, here you are talk, like telling it. So. Yep. Um, yeah, I... <sighs> I still was very alone. I got on the internet and looked around and like, what do, what do atheists do? Um, at that time in 2009, internet atheism was not much. And it, my first few brushes with it were not to my speed. It was, it was a pretty angry bunch or so it seemed. Um, since then, things have gotten better. But anyway, uh, I, I then on Slashdot found a reference to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast. And I never heard of it, but I figured they had to at least be hip to Hitchhiker's Guide if they're going to use that title, so they can't be all that bad. And then I found my people, skeptics. Yeah. I uh, started going to New York City skeptics events. Interesting 
um, I go to New York City Skeptics. I meet uh, the head of New York City Skeptics and a bunch of people. And they tell me that they have a function at the planetarium like next week. And Phil Plate, the bad astronomer, is giving a talk. I'm like, okay, I've heard of him. So I go, and it was a great talk. Are you guys familiar with Phil, I assume? A little bit. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, he briefly ran. Uh, he, he's, on, he's on the wish list to have on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, he's just infectious and happy and, and a great explainer of science, and I like him a lot. Anyway, he um, he did this talk at the planetarium, which was absolutely delightful. It was it was how terrible the science of um, Armageddon, the movie. Was. <laughs> uh, it was a really it's really great. Anyway, so he did a book signing afterwards of his book Death from the Skies, and I was chatting with the head of the New York City Skeptics, you know, because the only person there I knew, and he says, "Here, come meet some friends of mine," and he takes me over and introduces me to George Robb. I assume you guys know who George is. Yeah, George. I love George to pieces. He's been my friend ever since. Uh, Ms. Information Donna McGovern was there as well, as well as her friend, their, his friend Slough, musician partner of George's. Uh, so I'm like, okay, you know, a couple days in and I'm already meeting some good people. I get online, I get a book signed. And as Phil is signing my book, I say to him, this is all very exciting to me because, you know, until very recently, I was an Orthodox Jew. I only just ate kosher, non-kosher for the first. And he stops what he's doing and he stands up and he's like, I know who you are. <laughs> and <laughs> he saw the video pen made about it and um then we ended up staying friends so i kind of met all the cool kids right away and uh that got me to tam where i worked as a volunteer for the first week which was for the first year which incidentally i highly recommend to anyone going to a conference like this uh for the first time be a volunteer because a you get to hang out with the cool kids <laughs> but you get to learn everything fast yeah so um i like that very much and uh, you know through that i uh, ended up Oof, really sort of set, becoming a skeptic. I, uh, I think I'm a pretty rational person now. Try not to be an That's asshole you. about it. It's That's hard. That's good, right? Just don't, don't be a dick. And, uh, yeah. but you, but you found, you found your way there. And so it really was just, you know, and, and that's what I like about hearing these stories from people who have gone from believing something sometimes just, just because that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's life. This is what and, you do. Yeah. And then that path to rationality and to skepticism and to, you know, like, I like to think a more fulfilling life when you find the meaning in, well, life rather than, you know, the sky wizard and the books written by humans. So there's some hard stuff. Uh, a couple of years later, so this is maybe six, seven years ago, I got a message from a guy hadn't seen in years. He was a Talmud, Talmud study partner from rabbinical school. He's like, hi, I'm living in Israel. I'm a medical doctor, married. I have a bunch of kids. And recently I realized it's all bullshit. I don't believe any of it. I don't know what to do. I'm like, well, uh, I can't tell you that. As far as I know, I'm the only person he told and he stayed in that life. Because, you know, yeah. I don't think there's any way to thread that needle. You know, staying married with kids living in Jerusalem. I think you got to play along with your religion or get out of Dodge. So, uh, right, because that's the option. Everything, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really tough. Like, um, I occasionally, when I can, help out with an organization here in New York called Footsteps. And they are a, a service advice and social networking kind of group for former Orthodox Jews, but particularly Hasidic Jews, um, who often leave without even good English language skills and almost no employability, no education. Um, often needing 
to get lawyers to fight for custody of children because the community will tend to rally around the, the person who stays in the community. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a friend who has five kids that he cannot see that the community has poisoned against him. You know, they, they genuinely think their father's evil because that's what they've been told all their lives. Uh, so, you know, I got it easy. I got off easy. The, uh, most of the people I know who left Orthodox Judaism had things that were harder than me. My job wasn't tied to the community. Um, my ex-wife, thankfully, is a wonderful person who understood and, you know, we get along great. Uh, you know, and I, I have my kids. So, it, yeah, I'm lucky. But uh, very, very few have it like that. Well, we can, um, in our, like, notes for the show, we'll link to, you know, what you just mentioned, just as uh-huh. far as, like, other, like, resource stuff. Um, but I guess, like, to wrap up, I just want to thank you for coming on and telling, like, this whole story. Because It doesn't know, take just, much I, you, you put your microphone in front of me, I'll yap. I, I'll tell you stories. Well, see, we like that. And, and I, think it, I think it's just good like, to tell these stories of people, you know, going through this journey where you can go from religion to, you know, a whole different way of thinking. And hey, we have a few more minutes. Can I, can I throw in another fun story? Make you guys stay up late? Yeah, well, yeah give, yeah, give okay. me one more story. Give me another story. All right. About a dozen years ago, there was a news item that a big rabbi in England came out with the ruling that wigs that all the Orthodox Jewish women wear, if they have hair from India, they must be destroyed. That was the ruling. Who, who told it? Like, where did that come from? Okay, so I found this out because a coworker, Usha Ramaswamy, who is very Indian, comes storming into my office one day saying, what is this nonsense about, you know, Indian hair is not kosher. Like, well, like all of a sudden I'm the spokesperson <laughs> for all of Judaism. She was really upset about it. Like my people say her people's hair isn't good. And like, she was like, you will talk to my husband. He is a doctor of Hindu divinity. He will explain everything. I'm like, okay. No, this so is first, not my decision. Like, the, like, all right. we're like same team here, same team. Same. Like, Well, this was, but I was still religious, albeit I, it was right around the time. <laughs> so, I read up on what happened. What happened was the chief rabbi of England sent, he, he heard a rumor about something about the way hair was prepared in India, and he sends another rabbi on a fact-finding mission. And the rabbi discovers that there's this sort of pilgrimage that, I'm going to screw this up because I don't know anything about Hindu religious stuff, but apparently there's this pilgrimage that's really common and popular or whatever. But people, when they enter the temple, have to be bald. So they get their heads shaved, and they typically get their head shaved in like little kiosks along the road on the way. And the people who shave the heads just keep all the hair, bundle it, sell it. <laughs> Problem. <laughs> what? <Yeah. laughs> like we can't just gloss over that. Like, that's are we how making, like, dolls out of these people? Like, do they keep toenails? Like, <laughs> what level of like creepy stalker are we on here? Do you have any idea what a good human hair wig get, sells for? It's, it's no. I, thousands, no, I don't. Really? It's thousands of dollars. Um, yeah, many thousand. But I mean, I, I, I was joking. It sounded like I was joking, but I wasn't like, are we making like, like, they are handmade from long strands of Indian women's hair. And it's, you know, very time consuming and very expensive. Problem is (laughs) there is a general concept within Orthodox Judaism that a, an object, uh, that was produced in the service of a different religion is not just, you know, verboten. It like, you can't, profit from it in any way. So for instance, um, sacramental wine from a church, an Orthodox Jew not only wouldn't be allowed to drink it, they wouldn't be allowed to sell it. They can't gain anything from it. 
You therefore, if these women's hair is cut off as part of a religious ritual, the hair becomes an object of Hindu devotion and Jews would not be allowed to wear them. The logic is not terrible, you know, if you believe in this stuff. If, yeah, if, if you believe in it, it makes exactly. sense. It makes sense. Yeah. But yeah. there's nothing inherent, like, within the hair that you'd be able to tell, like, differentiate between, like, this hair right. was cut off. Oh, this that brings a very, very important second point in religious <laughs> knowledge in Orthodox Judaism. You err on the side of strictness. So if you can't know that the hair wasn't from that kind of religious thing, you can't wear it. So meanwhile, there are bonfires in Brooklyn and B'nai Brak, places in Israel, where communities are torching their wigs in like a big bonfire. <laughs> I, of course, now have to call uh, Sundar, Usha's husband, and defend this somehow, or while he sets me straight, we ended up trading emails. He is a, he is a professor of Hindu divinity, teaches part-time in India, part-time here in New York, and he really knew his shit. And he wrote me this long explanation that pointed out, and I love this because he pointed it out with the logic of a Talmudist. The cutting of the hair is not a religious practice. The hair itself is incompatible with entering the temple. So it must be removed. But the process of removal and the hair itself are not religious uh, activities. And in fact, the people who do the hair cutting are rarely religious. So... I have this armed, armed with this information. I now realize that according to Jewish law, it actually isn't a problem because that, that is a distinction that matters to rabbis. But it, but it seems to me that if it's a requirement, like regardless if you put ceremony around it or not, the yeah. underlying reason behind it is you are entering a temple and you and cannot have this. This brings us back to where I was saying before how we're more about the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those cases where really, no, rabbis would be happy with this decision. The best part is I emailed this letter that Sundar told me. I emailed to my uncle in Haifa because my uncle is a professor of Jewish philosophy at Haifa University. And he thinks he's an Orthodox Jew, but he thinks everybody to the right of him is crazy. You know, he's a very modern, relaxed Orthodox Jew. So he thought this whole thing was so hilarious. I emailed it to him and he replies back. He said, it just so happens that the administrative assistant for the philosophy department at Haifa University is a wife of a very, very religious rabbi. She handed it to her husband, who it turns out is the assistant to the head Sephardic rabbi of Israel. And he ended up overriding the ruling. Now, I don't know for sure if it was because of my efforts. <laughs> but it does seem that I single-handedly saved the Orthodox Jewish community's wigs from the bonfire. Well, praise, praise God or, <laughs> yes, or something or, 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 praise or, or and all the, yes. all the, all the things. Wow. Like, well, you know about the Arab, right? The Arab, you know, the string around the community. You got to know about this one. What is that? Oh, this is great. This makes everybody crazy. If you go to any major Orthodox community, uh -huh. you will find something called an Arab. They usually spell it E-R-U-V. It is uh -huh. a string that goes from telephone pole L to liter telephone pole. Literal, literally literal string. string. They usually use like like fishing wire, you know. And right, they okay. run I, I would argue that's not a string. That's uh, ooh, like in even when we talk about like blending like fabrics, like that's completely artificial. Ooh. Uh, you know, I've never actually gone up and checked. But, it, but it's, that. A, it's, it's a physical thing. Physical, it is a physical, a physical thing that that, that, that sounds pretty around to me. That encircles a community, mm -hmm. and what it does is it makes sort of a religious. It denotes this is a community. And the reason for that is, get this. Now, here's, here's what, where it matters. One of the numerous 
39 actually primary prohibitions on the Sabbath is carrying things outdoors. The Orthodox are not allowed to even have a key in your pocket when you walk outdoors. You can't carry a baby. You can't push a stroller. You so can't you carry can't an walk, like you can't even like lock your door. <laughs> uh, you like, can, you can, because you can lock your door and then hide the key. To hide the key, but, because this is my favorite. My favorite. Numerous people. This is really common. Turn a key into a tie clip. They basically take a, a tie clip and attach it to a key, and then you wear the key as a tie clip over your tie, and therefore it's something you're wearing, so it's okay. Sorry, one second. <laughs> Anyways, here's where things get crazy. Hang on. It gets so much better. The rule is you can only, you're only prohibited from carrying on the Sabbath outdoors. Indoors is fine. What constitutes outdoors? What constitutes indoors? What about, what about a shared space? Like if you have a, a little alleyway between your house and your neighbor's house and you share it. Is that considered private things? or public? So that's <laughs> so there, the there is one of the biggest and most challenging to learn books of the Talmud is Erevin, which is about the laws of Erev. It's a massive tome and it is ridiculously complicated in detail. But ultimately, they determined that a community can gather together and declare any shared space as an enclosed space by simply putting some kind of demarcation around it. Once that's done, now it is private space shared by many people instead of public space, and you can carry in it. So <clears throat> every Jewish community has a string around it so that the Jews can carry on the Sabbath. Well, the, the yeah. mental gymnastics to, to, involved in all yeah, of this is right? fantastic. It's and amazing. If there's, if there's like a literal string there, like physical gymnastics of like playing yeah. number. Oh, every but, Friday, every Friday afternoon, a rabbi inspects it uh, in the cab of a cherry picker. Typically, somebody drives around, the <laughs> rabbi's up there on top, examining the string, pole to pole. Most communities have something like that, yeah. Wow, yeah. wow. Well, we learned a lot so, today. I was going to say, like, I, I have I, a question. I learned a I lot. Have a follow-up question. Fine, follow up. Follow-up oh question. Follow-up. Is a car, a motor vehicle, considered indoor or outdoor space? If I, get I, in, if I go into my garage, get my car, can I have a key in my pocket? Okay, so once you're in the garage, you're okay. The car would probably be okay, but you can't get into a car on the Sabbath they for other drive, reasons. Dan. Oh, that's right. You can't do shit on Saturdays. That's right. Yeah. You can't, can't do no. that's, the, that's that's the main yeah. That's the main uh, rule or lesson I took from uh, the 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 I consider it a documentary, The Big Lebowski. Don't <laughs> fucking roll on Shabbos. Don't fucking oh roll on. <laughs> Uh, I have a good friend who has a t-shirt. I'm Shomer fucking Shabbos. Um, yeah, The Big Lebowski is an important film to me. It's an important film to everybody. I watch it, I watch it at least 200 times. Uh, well, I had an exciting only, experience in college. I really only have a few Orthodox Jewish friends that I keep up with. And these four or five other guys. And we, we were... My mother used to call us the Lebowski boys because we'd get together and watch the Big Lebowski again and again. Right. When the first, as you, when the, as you do. As with us, when the first of us finally got married, when... Our, and our friend Menachem, he got married, moved to Teaneck, New Jersey. I went to like 12 stores in New Jersey with a printout of the dude's rug looking for that rug. I, that was the housewarming gift I was going to get him. Because you wanted to tie the room together. Like, <laughs> Ultimately, really did. I did find a very version. Get this. I walked into like an odd job in one of these closeout kind of stores in New Jersey. And they had a whole rug section. And I'm walking up to the rug section. And the guy behind the counter was such a stoner that I just walked right up to him with the picture. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's the dude's rug. Yeah, I got one like that. <laughs> and that was, <laughs> and, and that's it. Uh, it was like $100 for this shitty rug. And the best part, 
We put it in his house. We watched the Big Lebowski. A few weeks later, his septic tank backed up all over that rug. <laughs> of, so, course. of course. Of course. As, as it's as supposed it to. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. So we're going to end on the Big Lebowski because why Absolutely. not? And like, mm. okay, so um, do you have a like Twitter pay account or like anything where people want to find you on the internet like we all we like to direct no. traffic or no I, no I, oh I my not, fucking man twitter is the worst i have a twitter account that i never use i'm very active on yeah, facebook the worst. Not, don't use it don't not use public it. um i don't okay. intend to i i'm not really a public figure i am the most interesting thing one could find on my social media is the one public page telling me the story telling you guys the story about my first bacon which we can link to and we'll link to uh, it that yeah. was pretty much it yeah, it's in the description now. I posted it on all the... You had a whole bunch of... Your notes uh, had some great, like, specific questions that I just completely blew by and didn't pay any attention it is, to. It is okay. Um, we, would, we would rather have more yeah, questions than... Yeah. Yeah. For example, I was going to say, for example, we didn't get to the question of, like, do, like, different Jewish sects have uh, <coughs> Snapchat fight clubs? Like, we didn't get to that question. Important, hard-hitting questions that we yeah, need to Dan, be asking. That was, your, that was some good journalism right there, trying to dig, <laughs> dig real deep in on that. Yeah, but, yeah, no, I, 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 I think your story was awesome, and I think we, I think we got some really good stuff. I do want to find someone to produce a remake of West Side Story, but instead of the Sharks and the Jets, it would be the Sotmers and the Lababachers. You get two Hasidic groups <laughs> doing a, a street rumble. I, there, I want to there, get that. Do it. Do it. it it's, there you go. There's, there's your project. Work on that. We'll have, you, we'll have you back on the show. We'll promote it. Sure. And, and there we go. Very good. I, I look forward to it. <laughs> Well, thank you for, for joining us for this. And thank you, everybody who watched on Facebook and yeah, all that stuff. This was delightful. Thank you both very much. Thank you. We'll see you around. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode. If you enjoyed listening, please consider leaving us a five-star rating on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast app you prefer. If you have comments or suggestions, hit us up at podcast at ascienceenthusiast.com. Find our full archive at scienceenthusiastpodcast.com. And then also Natalie's page, my page, all the other pages, the YouTube channel, all the things. But also, if you enjoyed the show, I mean, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash TSE podcast and you get access to premium content like early episodes and all sorts of other stuff. And but if you can't be super duper awesome, I said super duper as an adult, just like Michael, Trevor and Nathan and Alice and Cynthia and Michael and Michael and Magnus and Sav, Hannah and Felix and Amanda and Chris and James and Sarah and Jose, we would still appreciate it if you, you know, just tell your friends about us because that's how we get more listeners. Hit us with a quote. Go out in the world and fuck it up beautifully. And that is like my hero, John Waters. So that was just like one line from this um, commencement speech he gave at the Rhode Island School of Design. I think it was two years ago. Commencement speeches are the worst. Well, no, no. Listen, though. So this this commencement speech is fucking fantastic. And so it was made into a, a it's a very small book called they titled it Make Trouble. And um, we'll put the link to this whole speech in the notes for the show. Seri- like, seriously, take a couple minutes and read it. It like, yeah, I, I mean, he's he's a hero of mine for sure. And this speech he gave, like, I, f- I find really inspiring, actually. So I don't know. My recommendation is to read it. Do it. Don't do it. Whatever. I'm not your mom. Um, next week, though, I recommend you come back and listen to our interview with Sarah Lohman, which is, she was awesome. 
She wrote this book called Eight Flavors about like American cuisine and talk about somebody who um, knows food and knows uh, the science behind it. She is fucking awesome. So good interview with her next week. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Cool. We did it. Cool. Another week. I mean, yeah. I guess it's. I guess that's it. That's it. Episode fifty-one. Done. Print it or something. I don't know. Post this it. is why. This is why. I was gonna say it. this is why I handle all the <laughs> all the recording and editing because you you don't print a recording. I guess you could do the that's thing. How, that's do how like thing. records yeah. would work. Yeah. But this is not a, a record. It's a record. It is. It's not a record. But not a record. No. Also, this is not the seventies. So. Oh, I love listening to records. I've, I've, a, like, it's. I mean, I wish I had a more extensive record collection, but it's, it's decent. Well, I am not hipster enough <laughs> to have a record collection. To have a record collection. Well, I apologize. I am hipster enough to have a record collection. No, sorry, not sorry. No. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna go listen to some records. I actually think I am tonight, so. Well, you go enjoy that. Thanks. You enjoy whatever high-tech stuff you're going to be doing. Editing. Editing. Yes. Cool. Bye. We need to promote uh, offensive crayons. Oh, we do. How long is the Kickstarter for that? A month. Okay. So how do you want to do it? We'll, we'll, we'll do this. The music you heard tonight was written and performed by Adam Johnson and was used with his permission. You can contact Adam at adamjohnsondc at gmail.com. This podcast is property of Not Narrow or Straight LLC, all rights reserved.